Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large in Madrid. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 30th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we discuss the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the fallout from that ruling. Yeah, and it's terrifying. I'm queer. I am uh, gender fluid. I know trans rights right now have always been like pushed against, but now it feels like we're never going to have any constitutional basis to fight against that. I know my right to marry is probably next. I feel for a lot of the gay men in my life who might be subject to anti-sodomy laws again. So it's all overwhelming. It's coming in waves. What happens now? And how are America's two political parties responding? Then we turn to NATO's landmark summit in Madrid. We will make a decision today, uh, or at least at the summit, to invite Finland and Sweden to become members. That's unprecedented quick. Why is this summit particularly consequential? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, your ears have not deceived you. Jeremy is back in a big way, and he's back from Madrid. So we are going to get some on-the-ground, uh, you know, up-to-the-minute reporting from him later on in this podcast. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. Good to be back. But first, we are going to turn to the big news, or, or some of the big news um, here in the United States. On Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that guaranteed the right to an abortion. In some states, abortion appointments were immediately canceled, with patients left wondering, what now? And millions of other Americans were left grappling with how we got here and what will happen next. Katie, I am going to start with you while I gather my own thoughts on this. What was your immediate reaction to the to the ruling? Well, I went down to the Supreme Court on Friday um, after this ruling came out. And I think it's important to say, firstly, how how split reaction was in different parts of the country and that it is absolutely the case that there were large crowds out there first thing after this ruling who were literally dancing in the streets for anti-abortion campaigners. This is something they have been working towards for decades. They see this as half a century um, of effort towards overturning Roe versus Wade. 
uh, coming to fruition. So there were dance parties, there were prayer circles, there were people posing for photographs. But as the day wore on, it was really much more so the abortion rights campaigners who were there and by Friday evening who were really filling the street outside the Supreme Court. And there was real anger. There was a very raw, visceral sense of having what had been previously perceived to be a constitutional right stripped away. There were people who were very shocked, uh, who described themselves as grieving. Um, I spoke to, for instance, a a young gender fluid activist who said they were very concerned now for where this was going from here, you know, given the comments in, in Clarence Thomas's opinion in which he said that the same reasoning that had been used to overturn Roe versus Wade could also now be applied to the cases that had established the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage. I mean, this activist said uh, they they considered their right to marry maybe next. They were very concerned for gay men in their life um, who they fear may now once again be subject to anti-sodomy laws um, in the years ahead. So there are very real fears about you know what this means immediately in terms of reproductive rights and where this is going in terms of of other rights um, that that may now fall into the agenda before the court. And we should say that while you know while I don't while Katie is right to say that there are some people who are who are quite heartened by this decision and while there are anti-choice people in this country the vast majority of Americans according to all polling do support some abortion rights and what you do by throwing it back to the states is give states the opportunity to make it such that people have no right to an abortion. So the laws that passed, for example, in Texas and Oklahoma would basically say that life begins at fertilization, which as Katie and I addressed in, or as Katie and I noted in our piece, which we'll put in the show notes to this, implantation happens after fertilization and doesn't happen in all cases. So what these laws do is basically decide that you're pregnant before your own body does. And in some cases, you know, Texas legislators are also looking into allowing third parties to bring charges against people who have helped others get abortions. So this is not like a, a, the moderate 50-50 middle-of-the-road American decision. This was an extreme decision. They talk in the, in the decision about the turmoil wrought by Roe versus Wade. The bad feeling by people who do not support the right to an abortion is nothing compared to the turmoil into which real people's lives, women's lives, are going to be thrown because of this decision. Yeah, so just on that one one of the um, placards that really sticks with me from those protests is a sign that said, for all the women who died before Roe, for all the women who will die from this day on, and for democracy. Um, there was, as I've said, real anger. There was grief about what this will mean. But there was then also resolve to fight back that that this could not be allowed to go unchallenged. This is what some of those protesters uh, told me there. I feel angry and I feel useless. Like everything we're doing is futile. We're yelling and screaming and no one is listening. We're women. No one cares what happens to us. We're living incubators. Our only value is our uterus. That's what this government has told us. I have a lot of anger, um, a lot of outrage. Um, I'm here because this is so much bigger than just an abortion issue. This is a women's health care issue. 
I don't want to see this spiral out of control. I have severe endometriosis, and so women's healthcare is out of the top priority to me. So that's why I'm here. I think it's a blow, honestly. Um, I am a, a policy a analyst um, by training, and this has been the law of the land for 50 years. And with one blow, you, you struck that precedent and just wiped away the whole doctrine of starting to um, you know, confirm gun rights yesterday and wipe out abortion rights today. And that is, that is not consistent. And I think that that really goes to the core of their credibility. The concept of abortions not being easily accessible to people who are living in poverty will just deepen the cycle of people who don't have another way. And that is horrifying in a country that is supposed to be the most powerful in the world. I try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I try to be realistic, but this is just depressing as hell that a bunch of white men decide the fate of, of women everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think you can hear in this clip some of what we're talking about, which is, which is real anger, desperation, determination. I think that people who, I mean, I, I sort of don't want to make it sound as though Americans are thrown into despair. They are, but this is a very common medical procedure. Roughly a fifth of pregnancies that don't end in miscarriage end in an abortion. This is a right to which people have had access for the, for the past five decades. We are not just going to give it up. There are medication abortions now, which there were not back in 1973. There is the internet, which is both a boon in that people have access to information and a negative in that it is easier to find out who was looking up how to get an abortion in a state where it's illegal. Basically, in addition to all of this despair, there is also determination. I don't know that I would quite call it hope, but but I think that's that's was evidenced in, in that clip and in, in people that you you spoke to down at the Supreme Court. So what we should also say is that Republicans, anti-choice activists, they are not content with this decision as radical and as extreme as it is. You had former Vice President Mike Pence say that Republicans should work toward having abortion banned in all states, which since some states are never going to be controlled by legislation, I shouldn't say never, but like probably won't be controlled by legislatures that want to ban abortion. The way you would do that is through a federal ban if Republicans take both houses of Congress and the White House. You have Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who did not campaign on taking away abortion rights and tried to build himself as a moderate now saying, well, let's do a 15 week ban. Um, as I said, you know, you have legislatures looking into how to make this, how to punish those who go out of state or help those who, who need an abortion travel or get an abortion. You also already have clinics. So there are some of these laws that are, are going to be tied up in court for a while before they can be put in place. You're already seeing that in, for example, Louisiana and Texas. But some states, like, for example, the abortion clinic in Savannah, already shut down because they don't want to take the legal risk that comes with this sort of uncertainty. So basically, that's what we're at on the one side now, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of fear, and there are also Republicans saying, this is the beginning. On the Democratic side, and I don't mean to say every Democratic politician is doing this, you know, some have responded with not just anger, but with a real outline of things that could be done, like you have Elizabeth Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative um, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez sort of saying, well, we can, you know, you can open abortion clinics on federal land and military bases, you could call for the Senate to codify Roe, which is to say to, to pass legislation that would basically render the Supreme Court decision moot. You could pack the Supreme Court. You could try to impeach Clarence Thomas, whose wife is caught up in the January 6th committee hearings that we're going to talk about later. 
But basically what we've heard from this administration and from leadership in the Senate and House is to go vote. Now, I just want to make clear that the election that they're talking about is in November. There are people who are looking to get an abortion right now, who need an abortion right now. Like, I don't know how you expect to keep people engaged in the democratic process when all you do is tell them to turn up every two to four years for the privilege of getting to vote for them two to four years again. Like, and and further, you know, Kamala Harris was saying, she gave an interview and she said, you know, there's, there's a Senate election in Georgia. Yes, there is. To keep one of the two Democratic senators from Georgia in the Senate. Because we already people in Georgia already turned out to vote. They already got you two Democratic senators. Like it's not enough to say just vote a little harder, just vote a little more. You're the president and the vice president. You have the Senate. You have the House. This decision happened on your watch. It was leaked by Politico two months roughly before it came out. How do you have nothing to say for yourselves besides we think everybody should go vote? You like you're the Democratic Party. Do you do you want us to like democracy takes people believing in democracy? So you need to give people reason to continue to believe that that democracy will do something for them, like defend their basic bodily rights and bodily autonomy. Jeremy, what does this look like from from Europe? Obviously, deeply alarming. It looks like the US is being pulled apart by the political polarization of which this is just the latest example. And that's a, a topic that we cover in detail in this week's issue. You, you've written a great piece together on this. I've got something on what it means for the wide world. But if I may be more specific, it does remind me of conversations, Emily, that you and I had on this podcast a year ago, maybe longer, when we kind of speculated what the Democrats would have to do to show even a quarter of the ruthless zeal that Republicans have done in pursuing their politics. And we talked about things like abolishing the filibuster and DC and Puerto Rican statehood and expanding the court. And as you say, yet again, here we are with the Republicans who are not on the right side of history morally, but also have demographic trends in the US going against them, how they're somehow the ones reshaping the country and not the Democrats. And I thought that AOC's comments on this were particularly resonant because of just the sheer frustration that they conveyed at a democratic establishment that yet again is bringing a ping pong bat to a knife fight. Uh, and it's just this, the, the utter disparity between the ruthlessness and the kind of determination with which the right has pursued its agenda and, and, and the kind of lukewarm um, democratic and, 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 and left side of American politics, um, or at least the democratic establishment, is just astonishing. So that's, that's, I suppose, one thing that really stood out for me. I, I guess what I would add to that is that I think that at moments in American history where there has been real crisis, leaders have understood that the system as it as it exists was not going to save them and have made changes to that system. So if you think of really like historic, you know, the, the American presidents we remember, we remember because they governed in time of crisis. So you can think Lincoln, you can think FDR, you can think, you know, LBJ and, and, and civil rights legislation. None of those people said, I guess I'm going to have to work within the system as it exists. If this is not the moment, if a Supreme Court that regularly makes 6-3 decisions that say you can carry a concealed weapon anywhere in the United States, that say you actually don't have the right to an abortion, that says you can make people pray in schools, that says, actually, 
racist gerrymandering appears to be fine. All of this happened in like less than a week, all of these decisions. The moment of threat of white male Christian minoritarian rule, which is how I am perceiving like this moment that we're in, if that is not enough to get you to say, okay, you know what? We're going to get a little, we're going to get a little spicy. We're going to get a little radical. We're going to try some things that maybe we wouldn't have tried four, eight, 16 years ago that I'm not sure what it's going to take. But Katie, what what do you think? Well, just a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I spoke to somebody outside the court who said exactly that of basically we see how the system is not working and we're at a point now where we need to forget decorum. We need to do everything we can to protect real people's lives. Um, so there is a growing number of people in this country who do not view the Supreme Court as legitimate, do not believe it protects their interests and are losing confidence in the political system. And that has massive implications for this country, but it also has massive implications. And I think we can talk about this further with with Jeremy and the essay that you've written on this. This has massive implications beyond American borders too. Um, And you're right to point out the democratic response, uh, Emily. There was real frustration, disappointment, disillusionment outside the court with Democrats too. And just you know, kind of disbelief that the response to this was go vote, row is on the ballot. You know, people people were telling me, you know, we, we have gone to vote. We have repeatedly voted. Democrats control the presidency. They control both houses of Congress. You know, act, take some sort of meaningful action. And I think there's a real danger that this is a you know a galvanizing issue for Republican votes and for people who held their nose and voted for Donald Trump because for them this was about the Supreme Court. You know, if it's Donald Trump or if it's another Donald Trump-like figure in 2024, they are going to be able to campaign on a platform of promises made, promises kept, and who holds the White House matters in terms of the Supreme Court. You know, there were three justices added to the Supreme Court during Donald Trump's term. So this matters. If that's your issue, this matters. Um, so I think that is a powerful campaign platform for the Republicans. And I'm not convinced the Democrats are making that argument um, in a way that particularly reaches the electorate right now. Emily, I'd, I'd love just to hear, you know, you, you, you flicked at it there, but in terms of where this is going um, and the dangers here in terms of the legitimacy of the court, because this was not the only important decision that we had handed down in the last week. It's just so funny to me because Republicans, for as long as I can remember, have said, we don't want legislating from the bench. We don't want judicial activism. And then proceeded to, over the course of two decades, you know, three decades, put on the bench People who do exactly that, like who who claim that they're originalists when when the words on paper suit them and invent whole cloth, new reasoning when it doesn't suit them. And basically, I think if you look at all of these decisions together, right, if you look at the decision saying, yes, it's okay to have your students pray in a, in a public or as it's called in the UK, a state school. If you look at saying, well, the states can say that you don't have the right to an abortion at all. If you look at decisions that will, in effect, limit the enfranchisement of non-white Americans, specifically Black Americans, what you are seeing is the entrenchment of minoritarian rule in the United States. And it's very interesting to me. Well, first of all, it's interesting to me, and then we'll, we'll move on. But first of all, it's interesting to me that two of the six people uh, who went along with overturning Roe had been accused of sexual harassment or assault during their confirmation process and were nevertheless given lifetime appointments to the bench to take away this right for millions of people. It's also interesting to me that one of those same people, Clarence Thomas, 
has a wife who was basically texting Trump administration officials and other officials across the country trying to overturn the 2020 election that he has not recused himself from anything. It's interesting to me that in the last year of the Obama administration, Obama was not allowed to have his nominee, Merrick Garland, now attorney general, have a hearing when in the last weeks of the Trump administration, they rushed through Amy Coney Barrett, who had written at length from a Catholic, like had signed on to Catholic letters and so on and so forth, saying that she did not support abortion. And also that Samuel Alito, who wrote the decision that overturned Roe, has basically said secularism in America is bad. And we've written on this as well. So I think when people say this court is not legitimate, that's when they're talking about. When people say this court is collapsing separation of church and state, which is important because religious liberty for one religion is not religious liberty, that's what they mean. And we have a system of of checks and balances for a reason. The other branches of government exist because they're supposed to check this one. If the court is going to act like a political instrument, the other political institutions have an obligation, not just a moral obligation, but a constitutional obligation to check that court. Listening to this, I wonder what actually holds the US together these days? Because you have the presidency where a majority of Republican voters don't think that the incumbent was legitimately elected. You have the Supreme Court, which commanded the confidence of only a quarter of Americans even before this decision. You have the Constitution, which is interpreted wildly differently by different parts of the kind of American debate. What's actually left? What's holding the country together? Because United States is starting to sound a bit like false advertising. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Jeremy. And to be to be totally honest, I don't have an answer for you because it holds only as long as like norms and democracy and the idea of a of a functioning country, all of this takes popular buy-in, right? And I think increasingly what you're seeing, and this is, I, I hate to both sides, but this is both sides. I think that one side has legitimate grievances and the other side is, is believing a lie, um, namely that the election was stolen from them. But I, I think increasingly you're like it requires buy-in and, and fewer and fewer people are buying in. So we'll see what steps are taken to reverse that trend or not and where it leads. But I don't have a good, I don't have a good answer for you. Yeah, I think these are truly dangerous, very worrying times. And I think it is really striking that the people who dress them up as the most patriotic um, and pin the pin the flag on their lapel are working to hasten this. These are real, potentially very violent fractures. Um, and, and, we're, and we're seeing them brought to the brought to the surface now. Our next theme sounds like it's a complete shift in topic, but actually I think the two are related. So here we go. On the heels of the G7, NATO held a summit in Madrid, where Jeremy is. Most notably, Turkey, Sweden, and Finland signed an agreement that will pave the way for Finnish and Swedish NATO membership. Jeremy, before we get to Turkey, before we talk Turkey, ah, can you give us sort of a rundown of the the highlights of the of the summit? Yeah, I'd like to apologize, first of all, if the sound on my side is a bit poor. It's very windy here in Madrid, but I would invite listeners to, if they can hear it, to see this as a metaphor for our stormy geopolitical times. So that's how you can interpret this. I said talk turkey, so I don't even get to yell at Jeremy for that. Truly <laughs> no, I terrible lost, I, I just shake my head at both of you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not cross, you're just disappointed. Just disappointed, frankly. 
So yes, this, this is a hugely significant summit. Um, some are calling it here the most the most important summit in NATO's history. Um, it was always going to be a major one because this was the one where um, NATO leaders are agreeing a new strategic concept, which is a sort of vision paper revised about every 10 years. And the last one was written in 2010, and it's really showing its age. It still describes Russia as being a, a strategic partner. It doesn't mention China. And literally minutes before we started recording this on um, Wednesday the 29th, the draft strategic concept was published, and it sets out a sort of ambitious new role for, for NATO. It describes Russia as a fundamental threat and the main threat to the alliance, but it also brings in China, and it describes China as a, as a challenge to NATO's interests, values, and security. So it's a big moment. Obviously, the biggest topic is the war in Ukraine. And I think in some ways, this new strategic concept and the focus that the war has brought to the alliance has sort of given a sense that NATO is back, that this is a sort of comeback for an alliance whose role since the end of the Cold War has been unclear and which particularly during the Trump administration seemed to be suffering from major divisions. Famously, Emmanuel Macron described it as being brain dead in 2019. And so there's a sort of, amid all of the concerns about what's happening in Eastern Europe at the moment, there is a sense here that the alliance has, has found its vocation again. And I think that's helped by the fact that you have a president in the White House in Joe Biden, who is sort of marinated in that kind of golden age of NATO. You know, one forgets that he joined the Senate in 1973. He is in some ways still, a, he is a Cold War politician and he is, I think, quite instinctively Atlanticist. But and maybe we want to come on to this. I do worry that that gives Europeans here false comfort about the stability and the durability of the American underwriting of NATO. Well, can I just ask, because I had this moment this week where I saw a tweet in which um, Biden said, as democracy, when we show what democracy can do, there's no stopping us. And I was kind of like, are you showing what democracy can do right now? And I think it's we shouldn't say that, that, that like Supreme Court decisions are coming down and therefore American aid to Ukraine won't continue. Like that's, that's clearly not happening. We're giving extensive support to Ukraine while all this is happening at home. But how do you square the discussion that we just had with what you're hearing from NATO about, you know, the return of the transatlantic alliance and the values that it ostensibly stands for? Exactly. And this is the focus of the piece I've written for our cover feature this week. And America has given a lot of support to Ukraine, over 20 billion by early June in military aid alone, which absolutely dwarfs European contributions. I mean, by, by contrast, the largest European giver of military aid is the UK on just over 2 billion. So just a tenth of that of the US. And France and Germany and others have given even less than that. But that's precisely the problem. You know, I think if you look at these two things side by side, a NATO summit in which we're being reminded of how much Europe relies on the American security umbrella, where many of us ask awkwardly the question, where would we be now with the war in Ukraine, with Europe's security, if it weren't for the, for the American role? I mean, would Kiev still be in Ukrainian hands, frankly, if, 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 if American intelligence, American technology, American resources hadn't been brought to bear? And it's a really uncomfortable question. And I think that you looking at that alongside the kind of apparent slide into intractable fragmentation in US domestic politics, the likelihood or the chance of Republicans retaking one or both houses of Congress at the midterms in the autumn, the serious chance of a second Trump term or something similar from the 2024 election. And it's really worrying as a European how exposed we are to that and how unprepared we are for a reality in which this kind of this, this, this current happy clappy NATO's back 
isn't Biden a nice guy kind of NATO um, slips away and, and we're left with an America that's much less re reliable and heaven knows may not even be in NATO in five years time. I mean, John Bolton has said that Trump was determined to get, want, talked about getting the US out of NATO and would, would and will do so in a second term. And it's odd how little that comes up here in Madrid. Sort of, the, it's, it's, it's very much the elephant in the room. The big story, or one of the big stories out of the summit is that Turkey, Finland, and Sweden were able to put their differences aside, sign an agreement. Finland and Sweden are now on the road to joining NATO. Do you see this as Europe getting more serious about its own security, or do you see it as European countries sort of trying to nestle more securely under uh, the American umbrella? We'll put it like this. Sweden and Finland aren't joining NATO because of the, the fact that Germany is a fellow member. <laughs> it's about, as, as, as it has always been, really, the, the backing of US military protection. I think, by the way, those are, those are positive steps for the alliance. I think those countries have made the decision for the right reasons, and they, they also bring new capacities to NATO. Finland has Europe's biggest artillery force, for example. Um, Sweden, too, is a very serious mil military player, and it kind of it gives NATO kind of command of the Baltic Sea. This deal with, with Turkey, some have criticized. I have to say I come down on the more pragmatic side of things. I think that effectively this memorandum doesn't really commit Stockholm or Helsinki to anything that they weren't doing already. I think it's basically a way for Erdogan to save face. So I think that's a step forward. But it, as much as that contributes to the, yeah, NATO's back kind of mood here, I still don't think that, that, that contradicts what I said previously, which is that NATO relies fundamentally on US power. You know, American military spending is more than twice that of the other members put together. Um, and actually, it, a lot of the European spending is not very efficient anyway. Um, and, and, and I think if America checks out, then almost everything that's being discussed here in Madrid goes out of the window. And Katie, you and I were chatting before this podcast because there was another summit that happened this week that I think got considerably less attention from the so-called Western press or at least American and European press, um, which was BRICS. How do you see the BRICS summit and the sort of meeting of the Brazilian, Russian, Indian, Chinese? How, how does that factor into, into all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think Jeremy is right to just, you know, challenge a little bit this, you know, terribly good feeling, bonhomme and, you know, very positive, very strong statements um, coming out of NATO and the G7 this week. You know, I think we can tend to focus somewhat on the messages that, that suit our own worldview and, it, and it's easy to, to skip over those that don't. So I just did want to mention the BRICS summit, um, which was virtual, but which is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. There's also some talk about possibly being expanded to include Argentina, um, requiring a, a new acronym. Um, but, you know, combined those countries represent some 40% of the world's population. This was Vladimir Putin, you know, yes, in virtual form, but taking part in a major international summit, not as a pariah, you know, standing virtually alongside Prime Minister Modi. So I think, it, you know, it, it shows us somewhat of the difficulty of trying to draw this dividing line between democracies and not the West and not, you know, there are very many large important countries that do not want to choose a side or do not necessarily choose the side that many in the West would, would like to see them choose. So I think it just underlines how complex this current moment is and how much buy-in there is not 
um, in, in other countries to the kind of statements that we're seeing coming out of NATO and the G7. I actually, I pulled up a little bit of the Beijing declaration um, from the end of the BRICS summit just to treat uh, listeners who weren't following the BRICS summit um, as closely. But, you know, in their in their view, and this is something that, as I say, Modi signed on to too, all of these countries commit to respect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states. They commit to the peaceful resolution of differences and disputes between countries through dialogue and consultation. And they promise to promote and protect democracy, human rights, and fundamental freedoms for all. Um, so, you know, I think it's just important to to understand that you know this conversation is taking place in parallel alongside these other summits and that it is offering a, a fundamentally different worldview to which a number of very powerful countries are signing up. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, speaking of respecting democracy, um, it is time to move to a section that we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. 
our question this week, which I believe is similar to the last time we had Jeremy on. Um, it's also about the January 6th special committee hearings. This week, a listener wanted to know what Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony will yield. So if you are not familiar, which many Americans were not before Tuesday, Cassidy Hutchinson is the 26-year-old former aide to Mark Meadows, who was Trump's final chief of staff when he was in office. She testified before the special committee. There were all sorts of salacious details, like she talks about Trump throwing a burger at the wall in frustration and her wiping the ketchup off to help the valet. She talks about Trump. Um, and we'll see whether or not the Secret Service come out and testify that this didn't happen. But she talks about hearing that Trump on January 6th wanted to go to the Capitol and so like tried to attack his security aide when he wouldn't take him there. But to my mind, the most important thing that she said, which was that Trump was yelling that the metal detectors to his rally should be taken away because the people with weapons, and she had also said that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who are two far right groups, that they had been mentioned in discussions of January 6th and what would happen and by the Trump team. So he says, you know, the weapons won't be used against me. Take the metal detectors away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after. So what we knew on that day was that Trump had lied for weeks about the results of this election, that he had called people to town for this rally, that he had stoked them or he had sort of gotten them all riled up. Um, but this, to my mind, is like the, is the most direct, the, 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 the most sort of aha, smoking gun proof yet of Trump's role in the rally, because there's a difference between getting somebody riled up and saying, yes, let them take their weapon. They can march to the Capitol where, oh, by the way, the election is being certified or meant to be certified today. So where will this lead? We don't know if we, we still need to see whether or not the Justice Department decides to make this a criminal case or if Trump will get off legally and have to deal with the Republican primary field um, and face consequences. Personally, I think that if a sitting president encourages weapons to be brought to a rally to then head to the Capitol on election certification day, there need to be consequences for that for us to continue to function as a democratic state, such as such as we are. Um, but but I'm not Attorney General Merrick Garland. Katie, Jeremy, do either of you have thoughts on Ms. Hutchinson's testimony? Um, I want to offer a note of abject. Uh, analytical humility that ahead of these hearings, as we have discussed, I was somewhat skeptical as to the purpose they would serve and how much of the country they would reach. Um, I take that back. There has been truly significant evidence before these hearings. Um, I actually have one brief last question for you, which is, you know, you, you mentioned there Merrick Garland. What are the chances that this is now heading towards a, a criminal indictment? I really don't know. I think that he will probably approach this pretty cautiously based on what has not happened so far. And I think that there is there is a case that one could make that prosecuting a former president sets a bad precedent, but I just think that not prosecuting a president who tried to stay in office through extra, how to put this, extra electoral means, that that is a worse precedent to set for the country. Jeremy, thank you again for coming on. And now will you please get us out of here? Sure. So I'd like to say thank you to everyone who sent in questions. You can continue sending us your Ask Us questions to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Mary Yovanovitch on American democracy and Russia's war in Ukraine. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. We ask that you also rate us five stars five stars only, and leave us a good review. It really does help. With that, our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. And until next time.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.